Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Spike's Deputy Editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Australian elections, milkshaking and Mayor Pete versus Thomas Jefferson. How good is Australia? from Canberra on the most unlikely and unexpected general election victory in modern Australian history. Years of polling from a number of different outlets predicted that Bill Shorten and the Labor Party would be successful on Saturday. These are the quiet Australians who have won a great victory tonight. Last weekend, the National Liberal Coalition won a surprise victory in the Australian elections. This was supposed to be an unlosable election for the opposition Labour Party. All of the polls pointed to a Labour victory. One polling organisation, Newspoll, predicted a defeat for the coalition in 56 successive polls. Tom, can you tell us a bit about this shock election win? Well, it was definitely a shock. And the reason it was a shock, Fraser, as you point to, was just the fact that um, received opinion, all of the polling had been pointing towards a Labour victory, not just in the kind of campaign, but for years. You know, as you say, there were these 56 consecutive polls which suggested Labour victory. Uh, An exit poll, which was seen as broadly infallible in these situations, um, suggested that Labour were going to win with 82 seats. Um, In the end, they got 69 to the ruling coalition's 76. So this was obviously a huge chasm between what the opinion forming set and what the pollsters thought was going to happen and what the kind of mood was on the ground. Um, I think it's really interesting as well to see where the, the coalition won. So Scott Morrison presenting himself very much as a kind of every man, as a kind of common sense conservative, whilst Labour very much trying to make this an election about climate change, mm-hmm. about um, radicalism on that issue, um, as well as um, certain redistributive policies. But it certainly became a bit of a referendum on that particular issue. Uh, one of the big flashpoints being a very controversial mining project in Queensland. And the coalition did very well in Queensland. They did very well in suburban, often blue collar areas. Um, Meanwhile, you saw Labour picking up support, but not enough support in former kind of liberal coalition strongholds in wealthier parts of the cities. Um, As I say, it didn't really reach high enough in order for them to capture any of those seats. The one significant exception being former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, who lost his quite wealthy Sydney seat um, to a kind of independent environmentalist. Um, But what we're kind of seeing is really this kind of realignment of politics whereby particularly blue collar workers, um, you know, who David Goodhart might call the somewheres, uh, moving more and more towards parties of the centre right, or at least those kind of tribal loyalties to the old parties of the left starting to weaken. It's been talked about in the same breath as um, Brexit and Trump. I think that's probably, it's a little bit of a tricky comparison insofar as we are talking about a ruling party being returned to power um, mm. and they are just a centre-right party. But nevertheless, I think on a lot of those issues, the support for Morrison did reflect the gap between the opinion forming set and the people um, and as well as this kind of cultural gap I think between who he called the quiet Australians and the kind of media elite who were all expecting and you got the sense hoping for a Labour victory so it might not necessarily be a populist upset on the on the level of other things that we've seen recently it expresses all of those trends it seems like. Hello what are your thoughts? Well it's interesting that people have been talking about Morrison's Pentecostalist uh, faith and the, the fact that he said that you know miracles can happen this is a miracle uh, in relation to the election result I mean 
I think if you're fairly switched on in today's current, you know, global political climate, it probably could have seen this coming because the fact is there's a trend that if you go in really hard on the kind of green policies that the Labour Party did, you know, and say that you're going to absolutely slash carbon emissions and that this is a climate emergency and basically make out that anyone who doesn't agree with you is some kind of planet hating, you know, fascist, then you're not going to, people are not going to vote for you. The majority of, uh, as uh, Nick Cage to wrote and spiked blue collar workers are not going to vote for you because it's a kind of demonization of a certain section of society so i think it was less a miracle and more actually just a kind of you know assertion of the state of politics which is that actually nothing hugely exciting really has happened other than a rejection of the kind of very metropolitan elite stance of the labor party but something needs to come forward now and not just allow the same status quo parties to clear up and clean up but something new to come and take advantage of that desire for a better kind of bigger politics. I'm absolutely fascinated by the divide on on climate change. Bill Shorten the opposition Labour leader wanted to set an emissions target you know three times more stringent than the Paris Agreement and this is in Australia you know the country that extracts a third of the words coal and it seems as if you know the people who are now voting for the Labour Party, the you know liberal intelligentsia, the people who live in the cities, are obviously not would not be affected so much by the job losses that that would entail. But obviously, you know, the people on the ground, <laughs> mm. the people in places like Queensland, where um, where the Liberal Party made huge gains Swept against the board, expe- yeah. against of expectations, to Labour, though. and then obviously inevitably you get the the reaction to the results where people say that now, you know, because of this one election, the entire planet is doomed and, the, mm. you know, the Great Barrier Reef is going to be destroyed. Mm. And I think in the context of, you know, governments like the British government declaring a climate emergency, Extinction Rebellion, the continuing rising fame of Greta Thunberg and everything else, mm. it does just show that there is this huge disconnect on the issue of climate. And you saw this so perfectly summed up in the Australian election, and particularly in Queensland, where the election really was won, um, around this issue of that coal mine that was being built. Because again, working people see something that's going to create thousands of jobs. And what all the kind of liberal intelligentsia can see is something that's going to create, you know, units of CO2 emissions. There's this huge disjoint on that issue. And you can't get away from the fact that at the moment, it does feel like liberals in metropolitan areas just have the luxury of caring about climate change whilst yeah. other people are more concerned, you know, understandably and rightly so with more bread and butter issues. Um, and I think the other thing that's worth talking about on the question of the um, Australian election is also the polling, which is really, really fascinating mm. because this is something we have seen time and time and time again um, with various kind of elections going the different way. And we almost think that this is something that was just about Brexit and Trump. But of course, you know, in 2015 in Britain, when um, David Cameron's Conservative Party won this unexpected majority, there was a lot of discussion about that, you mm. know, even back then. And it does seem that you do have, in the same way that a lot of the people in the media and political classes are cut off that infects the world of polling as well potentially because people feel because of the general discourse um, that people feel nervous about saying who they're actually going to vote for to pollsters is one explanation there's of course a more sort of um, fundamental point is of course when you see polls this isn't just a case of them talking to a broadly representative sample and then just presenting the results they will make all kinds of adjustments Mm -hmm. Um, often based on what other polls are doing. So again, you have people's kind of, you know, confirmation bias reaffirming everyone else's, which is really interesting. But I think what's in the context of Australia, um, it's particularly striking the role that polls have increasingly played 
um, in politics as politicians and the media have become more distant from ordinary people, don't really have their finger on the pulse. As many people will know, there's been this kind of revolving door prime ministership, yeah. <laughs> prime ministerial office in Australia for a long time. Over the past six years, I've had three prime ministers, Tony Abbott, then Malcolm Turnbull, who ousted him, then Scott Morrison, who ousted Malcolm Turnbull, with the help of Tony Abbott in this kind of uh, quite sort of courtly fashion. Um, And a lot of the reason that Abbott and then Turnbull were ousted was on the basis of polling. Um, Mm. (laughs) Polling, which it turns out might not have been as significant. So you'd really do start to see not only polling and the way it reaffirms some people's in the media spheres kind of biases and and, uh, wish fulfillment as an expression of that kind of gap, but also the kind of way in which polling, as politics becomes a lot more detached from ordinary people, it starts to kind of take on an influence of its own, you know, Mm. which is kind of interesting. And I think that this other shock result kind of really hammers that home, it feels like. I think it's it's interesting because they seem to take, um, to measure the temperature of the public, not only from polling, but also from um, international circles. So there is this tendency, Nick Cater wrote about this in Spiked, that Bill Shorten comes across as if he's a bit embarrassed about Australia, that Australia is an embarrassment in the eyes of the world because of its views on climate, because of... Um, because of its stance on immigration or for various various things but and and we saw the same in you know in Brexit Britain the remainers are constantly talking about how embarrassing it is to be um british and you know trump's america is is an embarrassment in the eyes of the world and but actually you know if you talk to ordinary people in other countries they're not <laughs> i think people in britain probably have quite a good view of australia whether they know it's politics or or not and you know you talk to someone in france um, an ordinary person in france they're not they don't think brexit is embarrassing they probably like a bit of it for themselves so it's it's interesting the way that the kind of new elites are talking to each other in their own in in quite internationalized circles and and you know despairing at the state of their respective countries and and taking almost thinking of that as the same as public opinion yeah well i mean shock polling is often the sign of it's a simple point to make but it's the sign of a pretty unhealthy political climate because it means that people are sort of too embarrassed to come out with the truth of what they're actually thinking and what they're actually believing in and but it's completely understandable because the narrative certainly around the climate change debate is explicit that if you don't get on board with the kind of uh, quite extreme policies that some of the environmentalist groups are putting forward or like the Labour Party's in Australia's plans to kind of cut emissions then you are simply a kind of a Neanderthal who wants the planet to end I mean it's just as explicit as that and it's crazy that that's the kind of narrative get that's that gets put forward especially when you take into consideration you know that embarrassing moment when Bill Shorten suggested that it only took eight to ten minutes to charge an electric car and actually it took it took hours so it's not like these people are the experts that they claim to be and yet there's such a kind of elitist attitude to this that it's no wonder people are hiding what they really think so if you'd hope that what this election does is kind of give a wake-up call to the powers that be that say your current approach to talking down to people and to demonizing certain points of views is only going to end in your downfall and so we have to make a much more open approach to political discourse. You're listening to the Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. During the EU elections, a number of controversial candidates have had milkshakes thrown over them. The first major figure to be milkshaked was EDL founder Tommy Robinson. 
YouTuber turned Yukipper Carl Benjamin, aka Sargon of Akkad, has been hit with milkshake at least four times during campaigning. And this week, Brexit party leader Nigel Farage was pelted with milkshake on the campaign trail in Newcastle. Ella, what do you make of this um, milkshaking trend? <laughs> I think it really speaks to the fact that this there is a bit of a debasement of political discourse at the moment and some people might roll their eyes and say oh you're just you just sound like a kind of fuddy-duddy who um you know thinks that political protests or expressions of political disdain should be clamped down on there's nothing big or clever about throwing milkshakes at people and one of the things that brendan o'neill wrote on spiked this week was the wild hypocrisy of the fact that just imagine what would have happened if let's say Emily Thornberry, Anna Subri, or really anyone in the Remain camp had been milkshaked there would be absolute uproar and there would be criminal action taken against the person and there certainly wouldn't be high street chains like Burger King advertising on Twitter where uh, people who want to go and milkshake politicians can get their supplies from there's been a kind of cavalier approach to actually the seriousness of what it means to, you know, assault someone who's on the campaign trail in a the process of democracy. And while throwing a milkshake at someone isn't really the end of the world, and it's probably a bit far to class it as assault, it certainly is trying to shut down democratic debate. Yeah, definitely. And I, I agree that, you know, it's not it's not violence in any meaningful sense. It is nevertheless incredibly strange to see the way that it's been celebrated among the commentary. I mean, Adichia Chakraborty at The Guardian even called it the milkshake spring. Mm. And, you know, the, or the, the independence Tom Peck has been going around saying it's not funny, it's hilarious. And, you know, I can see why you might muster a giggle at it, but it's really not that funny. It's it, it, it and there is a kind of um, it has sort of been legitimised as a as a as a yeah. sort of tactic for shutting people up, I guess. Exactly. I mean, we're recording this on the morning of the uh, European Union elections, and we just got a press release through which is talking about someone set up a milkshake stand at Nigel Farage's polling station. <laughs> Some sort of um, plant-powered drinks company has sent this up as a bit of a stunt. So it has very quickly become a bit of a joke. And it is interesting, as Ella was saying, not just the difference between what happened to Nigel Farage with a you know, hypothetical milkshaking of Anna Subri. But, you know, what happened when Anna Subri was called a, a Nazi yeah. by those kind of idiotic, you know, wannabe yellow vest protesters outside of Parliament? There was national outcry that lasted days and days and days. Mm. And it was all centred around a politician who a lot of people in the mainstream media happen to agree with on the issue of Brexit being called a name, you know. So there is this ridiculous double standards. I think we do need to be a little bit careful, particularly from certain Leave voters. There's been this tendency to talk about what happened to Nigel Farage as straightforward political violence, yeah. <laughs> which I think is over-egging it, to say the least. Um, and, you know, this is... And also we should recognise that this isn't necessarily something that new, you know. Mm. I mean, my, one of my favourite clips in uh, political recent history was John Prescott walking down um, towards an event being egged by someone at close range and then punching him in the face so it was you know <laughs> in retaliation so it's not as if this has never really happened I completely agree with the point that this is you know an attack on certain people's political positions it is incredibly infantile I don't think we should encourage it I think there's also a persuasive argument in that unlike many countries particularly the US our political leaders are very accessible mm. um, and that's one of the best things about it you know you can more or less if you happen to see him on the street roll up on Jeremy Corbyn and start having a conversation 
conversation with him. Um, there's not going to be, you know, he's not going to be surrounded by secret service and people with earpieces in keeping a perimeter at all times. That's actually quite a good thing. Yeah. And I think the more that this sort of thing happens, uh, the more that that's going to be something which is going to become less and less possible to do. But um, at the same time, I think what was most striking about it, as Ella's already said, and as Brendan wrote about, were those double standards because, you know, we would be having a conversation about how these milkshakes were demonstrating that we were being marched back into the dark days of political violence if it wasn't for the fact that it happened to Nigel Farage rather than someone who a lot of these commentators happened to like. Yeah, and I think worst of all, um, even worse than the double standards have been the just the ridiculous logical contortions that have been used to justify it. So it's it's very strange to to hear people say it's okay because these candidates, whether it's Tommy Robinson, Carl Benjamin or Nigel Farage, incite violence. Mm. And of course, you know, you look at their statements, they've never done such a thing as to incite violence. Inciting, incitement to violence is a very serious thing where you, you basically order someone pretty much to carry mm. out an, a, a, an attack. Um, or even worse, people say it's okay because they spread hate speech. And, you know, again, it's not the most serious and threatening or, you know, violent action in the world. But, you know, on some level, people must be able to understand that speech is not as serious as any kind mm. of of action and the yeah. confusion of those two things is really really troubling and, and people were just quoting in some of these instances when they were basically trying to dismiss the milkshake thing and say you know what's worse Nigel Farage inciting all of this anger and hatred and violence were things like him basically using kind of military metaphors mm. to talk about the Brexit victory it was incredibly incredibly thin yeah one of the things that's been particularly gross in reaction to it has been the kind of cross-party hand-wringing among certain politicians who, you know, have come across the political divide to say that, uh, you know, this is totally wrong, this is, you know, the incitement to violence on politicians is wrong, that um, even if, you know, from their point of view, someone like Farage is exactly the same as a fascist or a Nazi, that you still don't do these kind of things. Uh, and the thing that just makes me, uh, you know, shiver about that is it's absolutely nothing to do with a desire for better pu- public debate or for, um, you know, a championing of healthy, rigorous political discourse. It's because these politicians are... Uh, it's because our politicians today are so hostile to the idea of public engagement that actually it's the best thing that could ever happen to them, a couple of milkshakes being thrown at politicians, because then they get to point at the public and say, see, this is how terrible and volatile you are. This is how dangerous you are. And so we have to bring in the kind of legislation that we were talking about on the podcast last week, the protections for politicians during election campaigns, which will inevitably spread into a kind of insulation of our elected representatives from the public. So I think the best approach going forward is to say, you're not going to die if you get milkshake. It's not the end of the world and politicians should be held accountable. But let's not suddenly now start saying that just because a few idiots threw a few milkshakes, we now have a populace that's a danger to politics as it currently stands. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? 
You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spikes-online.com. 2020 presidential hopeful Pete Buttigieg has called for events named after founding father Thomas Jefferson to be renamed. The Democratic Party hosts an annual fundraising event called Jefferson Jackson Dinners. But for Mayor Pete, Jefferson's legacy of slavery is problematic. Jefferson is believed to have owned 600 slaves in his lifetime. Tom, do you want to tell us a bit about this semi-scandal? I think semi is probably the right word. It was a story that was kind of leapt upon quite quickly (laughs) by uh, the right-wing media in America. But nevertheless, Mayor Pete was talking about this issue of specifically these these democratic fundraising dinners. There have been some places in America where the Democrats had decided to rename them and he was responding to that um, and saying that that was probably a good thing because of the Democrats' focus as he saw it on racial equality, etc. etc. But this quickly got turned into Mayor Pete wants to, you know, blow up the Jefferson Memorial, that he wants <laughs> to rename every street that is named after Jefferson, every high school, which was obviously not the case. But nevertheless, it is significant because he is tapping into this broader trend of places in America wanting to rename buildings, rename programs, um, in some cases remove statues of particular historical figures and also particularly Jefferson. So in twenty fifteen um, at uh, the University of Missouri, as well as the College of William and Mary. Uh, there were statues of Jefferson which were protested against, plastered in post-it notes, labelling him racist and rapist, referring to his um, relationship with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings, who he's mm. believed to have fathered five children with. Um, and it really tapping into this idea of needing to kind of remove these old symbols in order to reckon with America's kind of um, racist past. And I think even though he was suggesting a kind of softer version of that, it still expresses some of those tendencies. And this tendency really to appraise all American historical figures, you know, even the founding fathers, the people who are the, you know, the intellectual basis for the republic and had a huge impact on world history as well, um, purely on the slavery question and mm. purely on the race question. And to basically only ever look at history through that lens and feel completely unable, therefore, to celebrate these people for their contributions outside of that. Of course, Thomas Jefferson is a key example of that core contradiction of the American Republic. You know, he drafts yeah. the Declaration of Independence. Um, all men are created equal and yet own slaves. But nevertheless, I think that this tendency to want to only really look at historical figures through this one lens is on the one hand incredibly reductive, but also just feeds a kind of cultural battle, which I don't think is necessary for anyone to try and fight. And even though uh, Mayor Pete was not necessarily going as far down this rabbit hole as some people in the media were trying to make out, he was necessarily giving a little bit of credence to that particular point of view. Yeah, I found one of his um, phrasings really interesting, and and um, and and you'll hear this a lot among the people who are making the argument for um, tearing down statues. He he said that you know he doesn't want to blot Jefferson out of the history books, or delete him from being one of the founding fathers, but it's about who you choose to honour. Now, of course, this is this is the argument that that's often made by the you know people arguing for decolonization you know roads must fall it's it's said that the statue is is honoring this person for something dubious but it's pretty obvious in the case of jefferson that he is not being honored for holding slaves you know it it is not the evil thing that he is being honored for i mean that becomes more complex in in cases cases like um robert e lee where he is being honored for something a bit more dubious yeah but it but again it, it it seems to me a very sort of sly um attempt to if not erase them from history but then erase them from the present and you know to keep these kind of uncomfortable aspects of the past um 
out of sight, out of sight, and out of mind. You know, as if that really would solve issues in the present. I mean, honouring someone is open to question, isn't it? Because I mean, there's really nothing in a different context. There's nothing wrong with changing the name of your celebrity dinner. You know, change it to whatever you like. It's not really about that. It's the reasoning behind why they want to change the names and um, Mayor Pete was explicit in saying that it's not about like as you said phrase it's not about wiping out history but he says it's because racism is alive it's well it's hurting people and it's one of the main reasons to be in politics today is to change or reverse the harms that went along mm. with that so he's being very explicit there in saying that the existence going forward of things like dinners with the names of Jefferson and Jackson in them, what that does is kind of compounds the racism today and reaffirms the idea that black people are different to white people. I mean, anyone who, you know, is aware of kind of the level of racism in America knows that it is not true. It is not the same as the days of slavery. And actually in the fight going forward against racism to, as we've said a lot of the time on Spiked, to suggest that statues and the names of dinners or the names of buildings or whatever it is um is as harmful and hurtful in a racist sense as real <laughs> lived racism and real discrimination um is a kind of an insult to both to to black people but also it hurts the anti-racist project because you're not really taking racism seriously if a dinner name uh, or a building can be racist, well, then it sort of diminishes the seriousness of racism. So we always have to look at the context of why these things are happening. It's not just because we want to be a bit nicer and it's not just because, you know, Jefferson is a bit old hat. It's because there's this underlying idea that you have to block and shield and protect certain sections of society, minorities, from certain things because they are so fragile that is a very problematic idea. And you might even go as far as to argue that actually that's quite a discriminatory idea. I thought what was also interesting was um, what he suggested these dinners should be renamed. Mm. Um, actually, there was a little clip of someone from TMZ. They asked him a couple of questions and he raised this um, point that in some places they'd um, renamed them the um, Kennedy-Obama dinners. Yeah. <laughs> and you think the idea of putting Barack Obama on some sort of level pegging with Thomas Jefferson, when you reduce um, historical figures to just what feels to be the most politically salient question of the day, what was their view on that question? Um, you miss the depth of their contribution historically, politically in general. And there was a similar case um, in Britain a couple of years ago at the University of Liverpool, where one of the student halls was named after Gladstone. And so a bunch of students got together and said that they wanted it to be um, renamed because Gladstone had benefited from slavery. And the person they suggested in place was um, Channel 4's Jon Snow <laughs> and you kind of get to the question of, now of course on the question of race Jon Snow might pass in a way that Gladstone doesn't but mm. nevertheless the idea that these two people are on a path who should be <laughs> honoured is absolutely ludicrous and I think the thing that um, this whole discussion gestures to in more broadly which is the discussion about statues and, and buildings on campus and elsewhere is that there's a slightly worrying tendency to not just dismiss um morally people like thomas jefferson but also to kind of dismiss the ideas that he articulated along with it you know yeah. a lot of these people saying that um that core contradiction as we were talking about in the founding of america um really speaks to the fact that these ideas of freedom etc are always nonsense to begin with they were just high-minded principles used to cover privilege and i think that's a really really dangerous thing as well you know, and the thing about um, something like the Declaration of Independence was that the ideas that it articulated in there about all men being created equal, about having these unalienable rights of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, those 
ideals were what inspired people further down the line to actually make sure that America lived up to those ideals. Mm. You know, Martin Luther King in the I Have a Dream speech quoted that line in particular and said that um, they were here today to cash that check. So I think it's really important that, and one of the most concerning things about this whole discussion is that in the process of, you know, junking these historical figures, there is a tendency to junk the ideas that they set out as well, which even if they didn't live up to, um, were really important for, for politics and progress later on down the line. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. And for more great Spike content, just visit spikes-online.com.